Lord, I thank you for this opportunity uh, to be here again, to worship you, to sing to you, to worship you. God, we don't come together now to start worship, but we already have. We worship each day of our lives and how we honor you. And today we have the opportunity to come together to do that. Thank you for this opportunity. Pray that as we go to your word that you would guide us, that you would help us to know uh, what you'd want us to know, but it wouldn't stay just as information, Lord, that you would use it in our lives to make us more and more like you. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated and kids can head to junior church at this time. Alright, well, uh, we, together as a church, for now uh, several weeks, have been going through the book of Matthew. Uh, it's been a great opportunity that we have had uh, to see uh, the life of Jesus, as in it, and right now we've seen the very beginning of his life, and now today we're going into chapter 3, which will be there in just a moment, and we're going to see now Jesus is uh, a man. He is no longer a child, that's what we've been seeing so far. But we've been seeing that this child, Jesus, is the Messiah, and we've been seeing that he is fulfilling much of the Old Testament, well, all of the Old Testament. We're going to continue to talk about that today. So, a little bit of review for everyone who maybe you weren't here with us, or you've just forgotten, or maybe you haven't, but it's good to review. Uh, So far, the book of Matthew uh, theme, the theme of the book of Matthew really, uh, and we're going to see that very clearly today, is that Jesus brings the heavenly kingdom to earth. He brings God's kingdom, the heavenly kingdom, the kingdom that will last forever. He brings it to the earth as the king of the world and as the Messiah. And that gets us to chapters 1 and chapter 2. Those two chapters, we've seen several different pieces come together. We've seen in chapter 1 that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Messiah, the Davidic king who had come to deliver his people. We see in chapter 1 that he is also called Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus coming is God coming to be with his people. We also saw uh, in chapter 2, he is the ruler of the nations. As we talked about the Magi and the visit and the gifts that were given to the king of the nations. And then last week we had an opportunity to look at Jesus as the suffering son of God. The son of God who, yes, is king, but also would suffer. And that's where we were last week in chapter 2. And that does bring us now to chapter 3. Chapter 3, and what I'm hoping by the end of our time together, that in chapter 3, what we will come together to see is that as Jesus has been the fulfillment of the Messiah, Emmanuel, ruler of the nations, and the suffering son of God, he has fulfilled all of those things that were talked about in the Old Testament and foretold in the Old Testament and patterned in the Old Testament. All of that is coming true now in the life of Jesus as he sets a new pattern. And today we're going to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of a better promise. He is the fulfillment of a better promise. You could even say in some sense a better promised land, and we'll get there in just a little while. Jesus is the fulfillment of a better promise, and that's what we see in Matthew chapter 3. Now, Matthew chapter 3 contains one of 
the stories that becomes very, very key and very, very famous, if you will, and that is going to be the baptism of Jesus. As he comes to the to John the Baptist and he is baptized, and we're going to talk a lot about that. We're also going to talk about what happens before that. We're going to talk about all of chapter three, and I'm just going to warn you ahead of time: this is going to be uh, this is going to be not a, a marathon. This is going to be a sprint. We're going to get through this chapter three, and we're going to have to leave some stuff out. But there is some good truth that we can hold on to from chapter three. That's more than just Jesus being baptized and God the Father and God the Spirit being part of that. It's bigger. It's greater. What's going on here is maybe more than we could, than what meets the eye. And in chapter 3, that's what we will come to see. And we are introduced to John the Baptist. So today's sermon title, John, is John the Baptist, Jesus, and the Jordan. And we're going to look at how all three of these things, Jesus, John, and the Jordan, uh, really come together to give us a picture of the fulfillment uh, that Jesus brings a new and better promise. And that's where we're going to go this week. So before we even dive in to the different points we're going to look at this morning, why don't we start by going to Matthew chapter 3 itself. Uh, I don't believe this will be on the slides, so if you have your Bible or another way to read, if you would go to Matthew chapter 3, we're going to read the entire chapter together. Again, Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and in the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins." But when he saw the many, many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, but bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit in his Uh, Good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus is it fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, and, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is Matthew chapter 3. As God tells us exactly what else we need to know about Jesus and how his way has been prepared. And so we're going to talk about John, we're going to talk about Jesus, and we're going to talk about the Jordan and how they all interact in chapter 3.
So, we're going to first talk about John the Preacher. John the Preacher is who we're introduced to. Now, he's called John the Baptist, but what is he doing? John the Baptist, he will be baptizing, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but he comes preaching in the wilderness of Judea. We see here that now 25 years or more, not exactly sure the exact timeline, has gone by since chapter 2. Since Jesus goes back to Nazareth with his family to live there, uh, and it's been, now he's an adult, Jesus is an adult. Remember, John was not born, was born just before Jesus. He was actually Jesus' relation, relation, cousin of some way, shape, or form. And he, now, he's come, so he's about the same age that Jesus is going to be. This is becoming 25 to 30 years after chapter 2, and we resume in chapter 3. A lot of time has gone by. Obviously, there's not a whole lot there that Matthew wanted to report or that God told him to write, and so we get this gap of time. Uh, we do know from other accounts that he does continue to grow uh, as a child would grow, and now it's time for him to come to ministry, and John is the one who is going to be preparing his way or preaching that Jesus is coming, that the Messiah is coming. And so as we look at John the preacher, there's three things that I want to focus on. I want to look at the stage that he's preaching from. I want to look at his two points that are in his, his super short sermon. All right, so uh, we're going to look at the stage, where it's set, why, why he is preaching from there, and then we're going to talk about the two pieces of his sermon that are going out to the people who are listening to him as he is at the Jordan, as he is uh, in the wilderness, and that's where our first point comes. The stage here is he is in the wilderness, He is in the wilderness of Judea. As we see this, we're introduced, and yes, he's the John the Baptist, that's who we're told he is. He's preaching, but where is he preaching? He's preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And then if you go down in chapter, or in the same chapter in verse 3, where they quote Isaiah 40, which we'll get to in just a moment, says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. So even the fact that he is preaching from the wilderness of Judea, this would be in in an unpopulated, desolate area, and it's by the Jordan River, and we're going to see how that's going to play out, but I want you to think about what's happening here. Notice, for several weeks now, we've been looking at the idea that Jesus is portraying and, and retelling the story of Israel. And isn't it interesting, if we left off in chapter 2, uh, that we talked about the that Israel was exiled and returned and all of those things, and we even go all the way back to Egypt and we think of their exodus, that they would have left from captivity, they would have left from Egypt. We talked about that last week. They would have left from Egypt, and now they would have found themselves, after they left Egypt, remember, where did they go? They were on their way to Canaan, but in the process, they had to travel through the wilderness. Look in the Old Testament. We won't go to all the passages, but it's there. Israel is traveling through the wilderness They actually encounter two bodies of water, which is also interesting as you look at the Red Sea and how they crossed on dry land and then later on in the Jordan, which we'll get to. But they're out in the wilderness, and so it does make sense that as we're continuing to retell the story of Israel, that we're finding ourselves in the wilderness. The wilderness has now come, and now Jesus, and well, John here is in the wilderness, but he's preparing for Jesus to come in through the wilderness, and the idea here, again, should Bring our minds back to the Old Testament. Again, the Old Testament is being fulfilled here. The pattern that was set by Israel is now also being set by John and Jesus who would follow. Now, let's take a look at Isaiah chapter 40, uh, verses 1 through 5. 
Okay, because the other the two pieces of his sermon are also going to be linked here in Isaiah chapter forty. So I want to look at Isaiah forty one through five. Verse three is the verse that is quoted here. All right, but in Isaiah forty one through five, let's read that together. Here Isaiah writes, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her, welfare, her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double all, for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And it cut off. No, it didn't. Okay, my th- okay. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. All right, so we see this passage in Isaiah chapter 40, and there's a couple pieces that I want to draw our attention to. These verses were given to Israel as a comfort that their exile would be ended, which would start with a voice calling or crying in the wilderness. Now again, as we're talking about the wilderness, there was a physical element of this, even going all the way back to Exodus, but there's also the spiritual idea. If you think about the wilderness that Israel has been in at this point, when John enters the scene, if you think about it, there has been 400 years between the Old Testament and this moment, around 400 years in which they didn't have a prophet that told them, that brought the word of God. There was silence. And as we think about that, now John is coming, and he is a prophet, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but he is a prophet, and he brings the word to the people. And so the wilderness of being dry and not hearing from God is now being broken even in that sense. So a voice is calling out in the wilderness. That voice is John the Baptist's voice, and that turns us then to the rest of his message. So remember Isaiah 40 because we're going to go back there and to talk about it. But the two-point message that John brings is pretty clear and pretty simple. Verse 2, John says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then we're told, this is the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. This is the one, the voice is saying, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So let's look at the two things that John the Baptist is preaching. The first one is to repent. John the Baptist says you need to repent. Now this, as we look at the fulfillment that's come from Isaiah chapter 40, what we see is this idea of repent is a parallel to preparing the way of the Lord. So by repenting is how we prepare the way of the Lord. So what is repenting all about? Well, repenting is to turn from one thing to another. This was the message of all of God's prophets. If you look through the Old Testament, as a prophet comes to speak to Israel, they would always say, repent. Turn from doing something that you know you shouldn't be doing and turn back to God. That is the idea of repentance all throughout the Old Testament, and that continues with John's message. He says, repent. He's talking to the people of Israel. Keep that in mind. That'll be important in a little bit. But he's talking to them and he's saying, you need to repent. You need to turn away from something and turn back to Yahweh, your God. Turn away from the way you're living. Turn away from what you've been trusting in and turn towards God. And this is about turning away from their sin. We see that here when it even says that as these baptisms were happening, they were confessing their sins, which we'll talk about in a moment as well. 
So the message that John is giving is to repent, to turn, to turn from one way to another way, to come back, just like the prophets of the Old Testament would say, come back to the Lord your God, come back to Yahweh, and that is what John is calling them to do. Again, notice that repenting is the way to prepare the way of the Lord, to turn away from sin and be ready to receive the one who's been promised, to be ready to receive God, to say, I am done with how I've been living in sin, and I'm ready to receive the one who is coming from God to be the Messiah, to set up the new kingdom, which gets us to the next point of what John is preaching. He says not only to repent repent and prepare the way of the Lord, prepare for what? Well, point two is simple. It says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that's another parallel to the second part of the prophecy in Isaiah 40 that says make his paths straight. So how do these two things relate? Well, we see that John is saying there is a new and better kingdom that is now coming that is better than the old kingdom that is the kingdom of Israel. Remember, the people of Israel at this point still believe their Messiah is coming to set them free from oppression to Rome so that they can be their own kingdom again. But there's something bigger and more great that is going on as Jesus is preparing to come onto the scene, as John is preparing the people, and that is that a new kingdom, God's kingdom, the heavenly kingdom, the kingdom that will never end, the kingdom that is better than all other kingdoms and always will be, is coming. So how does that work out with make his path straight? Well, this wording that's used here is common to what would have happened if a king was going to be entering a town. If a king was coming to a city to visit, people would go out beforehand and they would make sure that the road going into the city was flat, there was no big stones that were going to get in the way, they made sure that there was a clearing and a path for the king to come. And so this idea of the kingdom is also even seen in this little statement that says, make his path straight. That's the idea, is you're preparing for the king to come. And so John says, the kingdom is at hand. Prepare for the king to be coming. Do that through repentance. It all goes together. So his two-point sermon, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We repent to prepare for the king who is now coming. Again, we've already seen this in the rest of Matthew. This is not a theme that we should be surprised by, that Jesus is the king who is coming to set things right, to start his kingdom. And this is what John is proclaiming. Now, just a moment, why preparing? Why would it be important to prepare? Why is John even here? Why doesn't Jesus just walk in and start preaching and it's there? The kingdom of heaven just comes and he's there and there's no preparation. I think, again, the people needed, it had been 400 years, the people needed to know that something was about to happen. And preparing is not a bad thing. Preparing is a good thing. I want you to think about just in your life, if you were to hear that somebody very important was coming to your home, uh, I highly doubt that you would just uh, trash your house and if it was snowing that you would leave snow in your driveway. No, you would go and you would prepare your driveway, you'd shovel it out, you'd do what you need to do, you'd get your house ready, you'd get it clean, you'd be ready to receive the guest. And that's kind of the idea here. That Israel needs to be ready to receive their king to put away their pride and put away all that they've held on to and be ready to receive their king. And that's the point. John wants them to be ready so when Jesus comes, they're already ready. There's no sense of having to wait around for them to figure out what's going on. No, there's preparation. They are ready for their king to come. And Jesus is indeed coming. 
Now, one other note I want to make, and this is going to come clear in just a few minutes. But notice that the kingdom of heaven coming is good news for those who want to be in the kingdom, for those who prepare, for those who repent. That is good news. Their king is coming to rule, and they will follow their king, and that is good news. But the kingdom of heaven coming is not good news for some people. That would be the people who want to cling to their kingdom. At this point, the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom that they've built up, the strength that they have, the power that they have, and that's going to be seen in the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which we will be introduced to in just a moment. So as John declares the kingdom of God is coming and declares repentance to turn from sin and turn towards God and be ready to receive the king, as John does that, you've got to know that there are two people in his audience and there's, there's people who are believing and there's people who are being baptized, who are confessing their sins, who are repenting and preparing the way of the Lord. And there are also those who are watching and in their hearts, they don't want to give rulership, they don't want to give kingship to anyone but themselves because they are comfortable in their own kingdom. And we will see that in just a moment. There's a foreshadowing there that we'll see. But let's move on uh, from John's preaching. Oh, there actually is one more thing I want to say about this. Isaiah 40, going back there. Notice that this prophecy, if you went back to Isaiah 40, when it says, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God, And then later on it says, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. If you're looking in your, in your Bible, you will see L-O-R-D is capitalized. This is an important point. We know that this is the name Yahweh. In Isaiah 40, the prophecy is set up to say, hey Israel, don't be comforted because God himself, Yahweh himself, is going to come. His glory is going to be revealed and he is going to, uh, he is going to set all things Right. Now it's interesting that that prophecy is now applied to Jesus coming. Right? Because again, think about this. Israel thought their Messiah was coming. Their Messiah would be a human warrior, a human king that would come and set the kingdom of Israel back up. That's what many people thought. But John is making it very clear here, and we don't want to lose this in this prophecy. This is not just, oh yeah, the king is coming. Yes, that's part of it, but it's not just the king is coming, but it's also God himself is coming. Yahweh is coming to his people, and that should again remind us back to Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is more than just an earthly king. Jesus is more than just a human Messiah. Jesus is a human Messiah. He is, but he is not merely a human Messiah. He is also God himself. And we see that throughout the whole Bible, the whole New Testament, the whole Old Testament. We see it here in Matthew. And so again, as John preaches, we can't, it's, you can't miss it. Jesus is coming. God himself, the king who will rule over all, is setting up his kingdom, so be ready. That is what John's message is. But as he shares his message, he also is doing something. And that's where he gets his name, John the Baptist. I heard somebody this week as I was studying this call him John the Dipper, which I thought was kind of interesting. But we're calling him John the Baptist because that's what the Bible calls him. But the word baptize does mean to dip or to immerse, and that is what he's doing. He's, he's dipping, immersing people in the Jordan River. And so... Uh, they are coming to him, and he is not only a preacher, but he is a baptizer. So we're going to talk about John the baptizer, John the Baptist. And we're going to talk about his baptism, what it looks like, what it means. There's going to be a lot of background we're going to try to get to here. There's stuff that we might miss if we don't understand what's going on here. 
And so we're going to take a moment now to look at John the baptizer. And the first thing I want to look at is that his baptism brings humility. I wasn't sure how to phrase this exactly, but we're going to explain what I'm trying to get at here. His baptism brings humility, or more, it exposes humility, whatever word you might want to say. But it's all about humility here as we look at what's happening in baptism. So first of all, we need to notice John's humility himself. As John is introduced to us, uh, he is preaching, and then we're told a little bit about him in verse 4. Which seems like, why would we need to know what he's wearing? Why would we need to know what he's eating? But notice... He's wearing a garment of camel's hair, it's got to be uncomfortable, and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. He is not living a posh lifestyle, right? That's pretty clear. He's declaring the way of the king is coming, but he's not like a kingly herald who's in great robes, bringing a, a trumpet and wealth. No, he is humble. The greatest humility is seen through the way he's dressing, through the way he's eating, And also, there's a double thing going on here. I think really, the reason Matthew's including this is to remind us again that John indeed is a prophet. Because that's just how many prophets would conduct their way of living, was in humility. And they would dress in similar ways and eat in similar ways that would not be uh, luxurious, but instead to be humble. Because their job is to be humble before the Lord and to speak his words, not their own. And so we see John here is humble. And also, not only that, but later on, as he talks about Jesus coming, notice what he says. He says, one who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. So, think this through. John the Baptist is preaching, and there are people coming from everywhere to listen to him preach. People from all over the place are getting baptized. They're getting they're getting dipped. They're getting dunked into the Jordan River, and they're confessing their sins. They're repenting. And John is in the midst of all of this, and he could easily say, look at what I'm doing. Look at my ministry. I am preparing people. People are repenting. But no, he says, there is someone coming. I can't even carry his sandals. Which, by the way, carrying sandals would be one of the lowest servant servanthood positions you could have. To walk behind someone and carry their dirty shoes. And John says, I wouldn't even be worthy to do that. And so his humility is seen. But I think his humility is is not for him to be seen as great, but really for us to see how following the coming king is about humility. Part of humility is confessing sin. We see people do that as they are being baptized. It says what's happening. It says they are confessing their sins in verse 6. Confessing sin requires humility because confession means to agree with God that you are sinful and in need of help. That is the essence of humility and I want to call that out to us today too. To be humble followers of Jesus is to say, I am a sinner and I need your help, Jesus. I need your help, God. I can't do this on my own. I need you. And people are confessing their sin. They're agreeing with God that they have done things that are against his will, that they have turned their back on God, lived in ways that are sinful and ways that are selfish, and now they're turning. They're confessing that. They're agreeing with that, and that takes humility. So again, we see John's humility. We see the people's humility. But if we want to look at fully what's really going on here in baptism, it's important that we talk about baptism, how the Jews would have seen baptism at this time. For us, we think of baptism and we think, Here's the tank, somebody's up there, you baptize, and everybody's happy. Hey, it's good. Yes, we baptize to identify with Jesus. We say when we get baptized that I believe in Jesus, 
He saved me, and I want everyone to know that, and I'm going to walk a new way of life because of what Jesus has done for me. That's what we do through baptism. But here, as John is baptizing, and others would have been baptized before this, before Jesus even really comes on the scene, before he dies, before he resurrects, before we have the picture of baptism that we have in our church, baptism was happening. And so what is going on here? What's the point? Why? Why would this even be a thing? So let's talk about it, because it's actually very important, and it's going to be important as Jesus comes to be baptized as well. So as you look in the, as you look in history, when we're talking about baptism, specifically in Israel, it wasn't that, it didn't, wasn't that common of something that would be happening. It wasn't a common thing. But what it would be is actually, it would be Gentiles who were looking to be converted into following Yahweh. Gentiles who would be following false gods would baptize, usually baptize themselves actually, which is also interesting. They would do that to be baptized to say, I am leaving my Gentile world and following the God of Israel, Yahweh. Obviously, this would take a great deal of humility to, to turn your back on everything that you believed, whatever your false beliefs were, and to turn and say, I'm going to follow Yahweh, the God of Israel. This is when it would have happened. And really what this was seen as was a ritual cleaning that pictured the fact that they were leaving behind their uncleanness. Remember, Gentile people, if you know this, Gentile people are seen as unclean by the Jewish people. They're unclean because they don't follow the law. They're unclean because they don't follow Yahweh. And, and so they would go and be baptized and it was a way to show that they were being ritually cleansed of their uncleanness and now were clean and able to follow Yahweh. In essence, what was happening during this time of baptism, it would be that they were renouncing their old ways of living and they were embracing a new way of living through their faith. They were figuratively, and this isn't any different now really, but figuratively they were dying to their old life and they were finding and showing a new way of life. Dying to their old way of life and finding a new way of life. This was the picture of baptism in the Old Testament. The the baptism that would be happening in Israel. But notice that normally it's for Gentiles becoming Jewish, but who is John talking to? I heard somebody whisper it. He's talking to Jewish people. So wait, something's going on here. Think about it. If baptism before was to be cleaned from your uncleanness, to follow Yahweh, now John is asking the Jewish people to do the same. Jewish people who would have thought that they were not unclean, that they were good, clean before God, as the Pharisees and Sadducees obviously believe. And John is saying, listen, Jewish people, you're unclean too. You need to repent. You need to be baptized. You need to be cleaned from your uncleanness and be ready to receive the king. This would have been preposterous. A preposterous message. You need to humble yourself and be baptized. That wasn't for Jewish people. That was for Gentiles. And yet John is saying, no, it's for us too. Prepare the way of the new kingdom. Prepare the way of God's kingdom because it's so much better and greater than the kingdom of Israel. And that's what the people are doing. Enter in the religious leaders at this point. As John is doing this, the religious leaders are there, no doubt, trying to figure out what's going on. But obviously, based on what John says to them, they are not in agreement with what he's doing. Because they are the opposite of humility. They bring the opposite of humility here. 
So we see the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They come into, uh, they come in here and they are not humble. They are prideful and they are prideful specifically because of who they are and because of what they believe. They think that they are all good because they are clean Jews like we just talked about. You see here, and what does he call them? He calls them brood of vipers. A brood of vipers. The most poisonous, deadly snakes. He's calling them, you're a bunch of snakes. That's what John says to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he goes on to explain why. They are poisoning their learners. And as he calls them vipers, they think that they're clean. They've been teaching that Israel is all good. They're safe from the judgment of God because they follow Abraham, because they are Jewish. And John says that's not good enough. That is not what's going to protect you. And he, they're teaching this. And so he calls them a brood of vipers. There also might be an illusion here. Think about what, we, what do you think of when you think of snake? Well, you think of the serpent in the Garden of Eden. I think there's even a piece here that John is making it very clear that what they're teaching and what they're believing is straight from Satan himself. But then he goes on and he says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? This question is a rhetorical question that John is basically asking, why do you think you're okay? Why do you think that you are all set and you don't have to experience the wrath of God? Who told you that you don't have to experience the wrath of God? And then he says, for I tell you, uh, or he says, do not presume to say we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is after he told them they need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, because again, in word, the Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious leaders of Israel, would have said, we repent. They would have said that we are following Yahweh, we're not following our own ways. But what they said and what they did were obviously two different things, and that's why he says bear fruit, keeping with repentance. That repentance isn't just about, hey, yes, we follow God, but repentance is about a way of life. And he says, you're not living that life, you're living a prideful life because you have put your pride in the fact that you are of Abraham. And he says, that means nothing. Just because you are a descendant of Abraham, just because you are Jewish, doesn't mean you're safe from God's wrath. Because then he goes on and says, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. In other words, God's judgment is coming. And you're going to be that tree that's going to be cut down, Pharisees, Sadducees, the religious system, the kingdom of Israel that is going to be resistant to their Messiah. There is judgment coming. It's going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. Notice that John's message here is not a message of uh, easy listening. He doesn't just say to confess and to be humble, but he goes out and really puts it out there specifically to the Pharisees and Sadducees who would be the, the, the representatives of the people of Israel. They were walking the wrong way and they needed to be ready for the true kingdom of God and no longer cling to their own kingdoms. Remember, the Pharisees and Sadducees were in control of Israel for the most part. Rome was really in control, but they were the ones that were on the ground Pharisees and the Sadducees believed a lot of different things, but they were both, in a way, leading the people of Israel. And so they are an example of the old kingdom that was that is set to be destroyed and thrown into the fire, and the new kingdom will arise. So we see his baptism brings humility. What else does his baptism do? Well, we see his baptism is in the Jordan River, and I said I would talk about this. This won't take quite as long to talk about. We're just going to talk about the symbolism here. The Jordan River, if you know your Old Testament, the Jordan River plays a big part in the Old Testament. The Jordan River 
is right next to the promised land, Canaan, Israel. The Jordan River is where they, that Joshua and the people of Israel, after wandering around in the wilderness, that's where they crossed into the promised land. God again parted the water, stopped the water so they could walk across the Jordan to go into the promised land and receive the promise that God had given them. And so now we're introduced again, here's the Jordan River again. It was through the waters of the Jordan that Israel entered their promised land, their old promise, their promise. So that's where they were, that's where they received it. Now the entrance to the new kingdom and the new promise is through the same river. Because as John is baptizing in the Jordan, Jesus comes to him and is baptized in the Jordan. Jesus, who is the fulfillment of what Israel was meant to do, and Jesus comes to fulfill all that, when he does that, he does it by going through the Jordan River in the same way that Israel did. Just a side point real quickly, if you know the uh, the basis of the Hebrew name Jesus, it would be the same as Joshua. Think about that. Joshua was the one leading them through the Jordan at first to the old kingdom. Now Jesus is leading through the Jordan to the new kingdom. Don't lose the symbolism here even of the fact that the Jordan River is where the uh, baptisms are being done. So his baptism brings humility. His baptism is in the Jordan River, which again is pointing to this new kingdom that Jesus is going to be bringing, the new kingdom, the new promise that we can walk into. But also his baptism is not ultimate. He says that himself. He says that he's baptizing for repentance. But the point is here, repentance is just the beginning. Repentance is just the way to prepare the way of the Lord. It's not actually receiving him. Repentance is the beginning of this. They turn from their sin. They're open and ready to receive the king, to receive God who comes. But there's more to it. And he says, the one who is coming behind me, Jesus, the Messiah, will come with a baptism that is far greater than the baptism that he is offering. So even with all that we've talked about, the humility that baptism brings, Jesus is bringing something so much more. And he says, I baptize you with water for repentance in verse 11, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So let's talk about that for just a moment. What is the baptism that Jesus would bring? So John brings repentance, cleansing from the old way of life to live a new way of life. Jesus brings baptism in first the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't have time today to break down all the theology that's been looked at when we talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But I do say, I do look at this and see that there's something very clear that we can understand of what's happening here as Jesus says, or John says, Jesus will be baptizing with the Holy Spirit. Again, immersing us in the Holy Spirit, immersing his followers in the Holy Spirit. And here's the deal. This is again a fulfillment of something that the Israel, that Israel should have expected. Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36 verses 25. Through 27. Here, the Israel is told this I will sprinkle clean water on you. Notice that water imagery. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This was. This was prophetic of what would happen to Israel as they would come out of their exile and now it's going to be ultimately fulfilled as Jesus comes and as he's going to baptize, immerse people in the Holy Spirit. This is what's happening. 
Notice, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. God is going to give himself to his people so that we can follow him with a new heart, with a new promise. This new promise is going to be fulfilled by our new heart that is brought by the spirit of God himself. And so when Jesus comes, he is going to bring the Holy Spirit to people, to his people. And we would, the new covenant, the new promise would be initiated by his spirit. So that is how Jesus here is going to fulfill the new and better promise that has been awaited for so many years. Jesus brings the Holy Spirit, which is the fulfillment of the new covenant, the new promise that has been foretold. But then he also says we're going to baptize with fire. Now there is some debate here. Baptism with fire, it could be about purification, to purify from sin. Maybe. The other option is that a lot of times when fire is used in the Bible, it talks about judgment. Looking at the context here, I believe that what John is talking about is the fact that when Jesus comes, he's not only going to baptize with the Holy Spirit for his people and give them a way to live a new life, but I believe he's also going to bring judgment to those who don't. Notice verse 12 comes right after verse 11. It says, he will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. Verse 12, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Here again, there's fire. I believe that what we're seeing here is that, again, John is talking to two audiences. Keep that in mind. There's those who are repenting and confessing and walking in humility and ready to receive the king. And there are those who are the Pharisees and Sadducees who are setting themselves against the king so that they can preserve their own kingdom. And so what John is saying is when Jesus comes, yes, he's going to fulfill this. Holy Spirit is going to come and allow you to live a new life, a live in the new promise. But if you resist, you will be judged. The Bible is clear of this. That those who follow Jesus will be blessed, but those who don't follow him will be judged, will be condemned. That is the truth of the Bible, and it's seen even here through John and his message. So let's move on, because just for time. But remember, Jesus not only brings salvation, but he also brings judgment upon sin. And that has to be true. Salvation isn't for all, but only those who will receive it. Judgment is coming for those who don't. But then we move on to Jesus' baptism. Jesus' baptism is the part that many of us know, that we have studied, that we have looked at, that we, as even as children in our children's classes, you've learned about the baptism of Jesus. But what is it all about and what's the point? Well, Jesus himself says the point, the reason, is to fulfill all righteousness. That doesn't help us much. Uh, there's not a whole lot of clear clarity is exactly what he means. So what I'm going to give you today is some general principles of why Jesus would be baptized that I think we can glean from this passage and other passages in just the New Testament itself and even the Old Testament itself. We're going to see some things that come true as Jesus is baptized. But know that some of this is guesswork. What Jesus means by to fulfill all righteousness, I think, does relate to what he's already been doing. Through the first two chapters, what has he been fulfilling? He's been fulfilling the new kingdom. And he continues to fulfill the new kingdom in righteousness. So let's look at a few things that this is all about. First of all, as Jesus is baptized, he identifies with sinful people. He identifies with sinful people. Keep in mind that the people who needed to be baptized were those who needed to confess sin, those who needed to repent of sin. 
Jesus, we know, lived a perfect life. If he didn't, he wouldn't have been able to one day die for our sins, for our forgiveness, because he would have had to only been able to die for his own. But he died for us because he knew no sin. The Bible is clear that he did, he was not a sinner. But yet, here he identifies as one of us, in a sense. Because he would one day be dying for us, so now he is identifying with us. And so we actually see that in the Old Testament, so this isn't a surprise. Isaiah 53, verse 12. Isaiah 53, verse 12. Therefore, I will divide, and this is, by the way, God talking about his servant he would send, who is the Messiah, who we know is Jesus. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Noticed here that in Isaiah 53 is the, the servant who would suffer is, go, is being projected out. That Jesus would fulfill that. The Messiah would fulfill that. And we see him fulfilling this. And notice he was numbered with the transgressors. The transgressors. He was seen to be like one of us. Not that he had sinned but that he identified with us as sinners so that he could one day die to forgive us of our sins and make intercession for us as he identifies with us. And so we see that he had no sin but would take the punishment of sin on himself. And so therefore, as he gets baptized, he is taking that identity. I am, he is a human that would die for sin. A bigger thing, maybe not bigger, but one of the other things he does as he is baptized is he pictures the new covenant we've been talking about. He pictures the new promise. This is a picture. Baptism is always a picture. It is a picture of the death he will one day die and that then, uh, that he will, that will bring salvation then through his resurrection. Again, even as we baptize, we, we talk about how when you go under the water, you're dying to one life and coming out and rising again to another. And Jesus is even predicting that even as he's baptized. That he's dying from one thing and living to another and that would be one day what he would do as he would die for our sins, rise again to show his power over sin and death. He would do all of that and that was coming and this is a foreshadowing of that. It's also a picture of the transition from the old kingdom to the new kingdom. As Jesus embodies the story of Israel like we've been talking about, he is pointing forward to the cleansing and restoration that he is bringing that Israel never could. So as he even pictures his death and resurrection, he's also the picture here of the old kingdom dying and the new kingdom rising. Don't miss this. He is, this is why he's being baptized to show everyone that this is the new kingdom coming. The old is gone, the new has come, and Jesus is showing that even as he is baptized. Again, he didn't need to be baptized for confession or repentance, but he's baptized to identify with us and to show us that what, that what, that his death and his resurrection is bringing a new kingdom. And finally, we see at the end of this that as Jesus is baptized, it also he is publicly anointed by God. He identifies with sinful people. He pictures the new, te- the new covenant. And he is publicly anointed by God. We see that happening here at the very end of this passage. As he comes up out of the water, it says, The heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Here we see that... God is giving his blessing, if you will, to Jesus and his ministry that would be following. We see the anointing of the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit comes and like a dove rests on him. And this should drive us back to the imagery in the Old Testament of Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. 
Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. And Jesus would actually quote this about himself in another gospel. But Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. And this is talking about the coming Messiah. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, and he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit." that they may be called oaks of righteousness, planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Here in Isaiah chapter 61, we see this idea that when the Messiah comes, the Spirit of the Lord would be upon him, and we see that wording being used here. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Jesus has come to do all of these things. Notice all the similarities of the things we've already talked about today. There's talking about how he's come for the humble. There's talk about how he's come to comfort people. He's come to bring vengeance. And there's even this tree imagery at the end. Remember, uh, in this passage in chapter 3, it says, the axe is laid at the stump of the tree, the tree, the root of the tree. The tree is ready to be cut down. But what we're told here is the Messiah would bring a new tree, a strong tree that would not be cut down. Again, so as Jesus is baptized, he comes up and the Holy Spirit, as like a dove, rests on him. It's to show us, the readers, it's to show us that God, his spirit, has anointed Jesus for his ministry, the ministry that was, that was predicted all the way back in Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. Then we also see the approval of the Father, not only the anointing of the Holy Spirit on Jesus' ministry, but the approval of the Father. A couple of phrases are used. It says, this is my son, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. These two statements seem to be obviously drawn from two Old Testament passages that are, again, messianic in how they are portraying who the Messiah would be. Psalm 2-7 is one of these. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. In Psalm 2, if you remember, this psalm is about the kingdom of God and how the Messiah, the one who is coming from the line of David, would rule over all nations. And here God calls that Messiah his son that he has begotten. And then in Isaiah 42.1, we see the other side of this. Isaiah 42.1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. So again, behold my servant whom I behold my chosen and whom my soul delights. That's the idea. As God says, in whom I delight, in whom my soul delights. Again, this is the one that he's put his spirit upon, which we already saw, and that he will bring forth justice to the nations. Here's the thing. These two things point us to the fact that Jesus is fulfilling two things. He is the ruler that's been promised, the king to rule the nations, and he's also the suffering servant. That's who Isaiah 42 is starting to talk about, the suffering servant. This was all unpacked for you last week. So if you missed last week's sermon, go back because I'm not going to spend more time on this. The son of God is the ruling son and the suffering son. And so Jesus is seen to be that. The suffering son, the ruling son of God himself. So we've looked at chapter 3. Allow me to now take a few moments to look at the implications and just to conclude together. What are the implications of all of this? Chapter 3, we've looked at a lot of different things. We've looked at a lot. I know we've 
We've, we've maybe dove into things you haven't before. Or maybe you have. But what, is, what does it mean? How, how, do we, how do we take this and say, okay, let's move forward. And, and we learn so much about Jesus here. We learn so much about what's happening as John prepares the way for Jesus. But it does mean that we need to react to it. And here's the couple of simple things I'm going to say. But the one overarching thought is this. We must be subject to the kingdom of heaven. We must be subject to the kingdom of heaven. We need to no longer be living for the kingdoms of this world or to be living for our own kingdom. That's what people were doing before John comes and he says the new kingdom is coming. They were living for their own kingdom. The Pharisees and the Sadducees continue to live for their own kingdom. They live for the physical king of, kingdom of Israel. They live for their own kingdom, their own, their own power. And we can do the exact same thing. We don't have the kingdom of Israel that we can say, well, this is our kingdom. But sometimes we might say that even about where we live. But even more so, I believe it's about where, how we live. That it's our kingdom. It's what we want. It's how we decide to live. That is our kingdom. We are the king of our kingdom. And We need to subject ourselves to the true kingdom of God. Jesus is the king. He is the king who is God. And we need to serve him. We need to love him. We need to look to him and follow him. And how does that look? Well, we live a life of true repentance and faith. Live a life of true repentance. Notice I used the word true. Remember the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they had a form of repentance, but there was no fruit that went along with it, and it was going to lead them to destruction. So we need to live a life of true repentance that requires humility. It it requires us to confess that we are sinners, that we are sinful people, that we are weak, that we need help, that we can't handle life on our own, that we can't handle this, the troubles of this life, that we can't just make our own lives count by our own strength. We need to clear a way for the king. We need to repent and remove the sin. And that doesn't mean that we're going to automatically be perfect. We're still going to struggle each day as we live a life of true repentance to turn from our selfish, sinful ways and to turn towards Jesus every day of our lives. It starts with our salvation in Jesus and every day we live a life of true repentance and faith. We believe in Jesus. We believe he's the king and therefore our life will will show it. I want to just challenge all of us to really take a hard look at our lives and make sure that we are truly living repentant, faithful lives. That we haven't just said to Jesus, yes, please save me, I want you to be my king, but we're not really willing, we're not really willing to follow the king. To turn away from ourselves and to turn towards him. This is a part of having faith. If we truly believe in this king who has come, who, by the way, was the suffering servant, who would not only be the king, but one who would come and suffer for our sins, die for our sins on the cross, rise again to show his power over all of that, and he did all of that so that we could be saved if we will come to him, and so that we can be forgiven of our sin. He identified with the sinners through his, through his baptism and in his death, and now if we come to him in faith, we can have eternal life, and we can live in the kingdom of heaven. Live in the kingdom of God. No longer live in the kingdoms that will pass away, the kingdoms that are corrupt, but we can live in the true and lasting kingdom of God himself. And we do that as we come by, by repentance and faith. Again, two sides, same coin. As we believe in the king, we will follow the king. And so we must be subject to the kingdom of heaven by living a life of true repentance and faith. And then, <clears throat> I also believe in this passage we can get this idea. We need to follow Jesus through baptism. This isn't a, baptism day we've preached baptism before but again 
If you know Jesus, if you are following Jesus, you are following the king, then get baptized. As the rest of the New Testament will tell you, whenever the gospel is preached, it's preached to repent and be baptized. These things are important because baptism shows the faith and repentance that you have. And so if you have not been baptized, you have not humbled yourself to say, I'm dying to myself and I'm living for Jesus, to, the, to publicly declare that, then I would encourage you to make sure you do. So start by talking to an elder and telling them, I wish to be baptized to show my allegiance to the King Jesus. So in conclusion, three questions. Are you trusting in anything or anyone other than Jesus for your salvation? This is an important question. The Sadducees and Pharisees thought they were good. The Pharisees and Sadducees thought everything was good for them. They were fine. There was no issues. They were Israelites from Abraham, so surely they would not be judged. They were trusting in the wrong thing. They were trusting in the wrong person. So I want to just ask you today, who are you trusting in? Who are you trusting in for your salvation the true king of the world or are you trusting in someone or something else? Are you trusting in yourself? Are you trusting in the fact that you've grown up in church? Are you trusting in the fact that you call yourself a Christian? Are you trusting in a fact that when you were a child you remember maybe saying a prayer? All of those things, don't just base your salvation in that but base your salvation in the fact that you are walking in a life that is of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, the king of all. Make sure Think about that. Pray about that. Make sure that you are not trusting anything or anyone else for your salvation. And really think about it. And if you are, then you need to repent of that and turn to Jesus. That's the point. Then a couple questions that only you can answer. Are you living a life of humble repentance? Think about your life, the way you're living. Are you living a life of humble repentance? Or are you living a life of prideful rebellion? And finally, again, do you need to be baptized? We've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. We've been baptized, if we know Jesus, we've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. The world is being baptized in fire as it will be judged. But have you been physically dipped in the water to show the spiritual truth of your allegiance to the King Jesus? Those are questions I want you to consider this week. I've taken all our time, so we won't be closing with a song this morning. If you just join me in prayer, and then immediately following, I'll give some announcements. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning that you've given us to remember you are indeed the king of a new kingdom that you've brought a new promise to us a new promised land that we crossed through because of you that you fulfilled all things so that we could have true eternal life in the kingdom of heaven that will last forever God if there's anyone in this room right now that just needs to know you and actually follow you as their king would you convict them would you bring them to a place where they need to know you and would they reach out to someone who can, act, who can tell them how they can follow you as their king with no reservations, Lord. Father, again, we thank you for your fulfillment of your word. We thank you that we know Jesus has set all things right and he is ruling on the throne. Help us to follow him in humble repentance this week. And I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.